Mac Power Users, episode 479, 100,000 subscribers with Renee Ritchie. Hello, everyone. My name is David Sparks, and I'm joined by my pal, Mr. Stephen Hackett. Hey, David. How are you? Oh, I'm doing great. We have a special guest today. That's our friend, Renee Ritchie. Welcome back to the show, Renee. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, you know, we've been watching you, and it's really amazing what you've done on YouTube. In fact, I was just looking. You are just on the cusp of 100,000 subscribers, and I feel like um, it's the job of the Mac Power Users audience to bring you over that. So <laughs> uh, when this show publishes, gang, go go subscribe, and he's got some great content, and uh, we can push him over the edge. Oh, thank you. So for years, you've been over at, um, at iMore writing, I, one of the most prolific writers in the Mac community. And of course, once you get into video, you're one of the most prolific video producers as well. I, I guess that shouldn't surprise any of us. I, I feel like I have a compulsion. Just there's all this stuff in my head. And in the old days, I just blogged about it and then started podcasting about it and now videoing about it in some main attempt to get it out of my head. Yeah. No, I get it, man. I, I do too. I I think that's the reason a lot of us are busy in this community is that we've got something on our mind. <laughs> we yeah. got to get it out there. Uh, but it, it really is uh, impressive, the amount of work you're doing. But, but you know, largely you focus on Apple technologies and commentary on the Apple ecosystem. So I thought since it's been a few years since you've been on, we should probably just start with you giving us an update on what kind of gear you're using. It changes during the year as new stuff comes out and as I experiment with it. So just right now, uh, I'm using the 2018 MacBook Pro, the one that came out in July. Not the slightly fancier Vega Pro version that came out in October or November-ish, but yeah. the one that they announced in July, the 15-inch. And I swore I, would, I had a 17-inch MacBook Pro as my first one. And then I worked my way down to a 13-inch because I was <laughs> traveling so much. And I said I would never go back. But Final Cut is just so thirsty that yeah. I, I needed it for... Um, because I, I've done video on a MacBook Air and it's worked. It's just the it doesn't it's not very fast. And when you start to go to Apple events and need to do video, you need both the portability and the speed. So I just ended up landing on the latest generation MacBook Pro. And primarily it wasn't just for the processor, it's because they've uh, amped up the storage. I didn't go for four I didn't mortgage the house and go for four gigabytes, but I did go up to sorry, four terabytes, but I did go up to two terabytes. And where I previously was continually swapping external drives and paranoid that one would fall out and I'd lose everything, uh, just having that much storage inside, I, I still push up against it, but that's like with 13 projects going on at Final Cut at once. It's effectively uh, an amazing mobile editing workstation now with just all that storage. Yeah, I, I do a lot of um, video stuff on my machine too. And that was the one thing I felt guilty about was buying two terabyte SSD. But it was the one thing where like it hurts when you pay it, but it's so nice to never really have to think about storage. And with one terabyte these days, that is not enough for me. Yeah, I well, I was I was at five twelve, I think, in my Mac before this, and that meant I was just I could have like one, maybe two Final Cut projects and a couple hard drives, but going back and forth. And then at the at one of the Apple events, they had the guy who made Desposito, the producer, and he said that it was just the ability to work on that machine and not have to worry about the drives was transformative 
for him and that just sold me because i figured you know he's doing music videos and he doesn't have enough space uh that's probably the best machine for me to get and the size thing is interesting because i feel like a lot of us have been on that journey i remember the old battleship 17 inch you know macbook pro and everybody loved it and and everybody did work down to these smaller machines but i i have heard from some listeners that talk about the fact that they're buying bigger laptops you know they're heading back to the 15 now because the ipad has got to a point where the ipad is their portable machine and if they're going to have just one mac they might as well get the bigger screen um do you find that it is the case for you or is it just the the compute power yeah, so when I'm not doing Final Cut, um, there's a few things that I still do on the Mac just because I've been using it so long and it's muscle memory and I've never taken the time because uh, time, time is like one of those few things that you can't buy any more of. So if I know how to do something and I can do it real fast like Photoshop on a Mac, I just keep doing it. Um, but almost everything else, especially when I'm traveling, I do on a on a 12.9-inch iPad Pro. And it's the same thing. I'd gone down to the smaller iPad Pro because the previous one just felt like I was carrying a second laptop around. But now that they've deleted all that bezel from it, it it feels like the older, smaller iPad. And it's just so all-in-one and always online. And if I'm at an airport or a coffee shop or a hotel or even in in the backseat of a lift or in an airport shuttle, I can just keep working. And it really, in both the best and worst (laughs) senses of the word, it really makes me wish for a, a MacBook with a SIM card slot. To have an LTE just built into a MacBook or a MacBook Air would be, it, it would kind of bridge those worlds for me uh, in, in a way that, you know, look, we've all had that experience where we tried to tether and yeah. it doesn't work or like you have to restart everything. And having it built into the iPad is such a game changer. I definitely recommend to people if you're going to take a, a serious swing at, Put moving your work onto the iPad, cellular makes such a huge difference. And I find that just because, I don't know what it's like in the US, but I, they just charge so much for data in Canada that the iPad almost becomes a welcome constraint because it is so, iOS is so data, especially when it's not plugged in, it is so data economical. It just subsists on data and there's no big processes going on in the background. And even tethering on a Mac, you just, I just watch my mobile data disappear over time. Mm-hmm. Uh so if they could bring that to macOS, but bring sort of the discipline of iOS data management as well, I think that would be fantastic. Yeah, everyone's running around uh, with you know trip mode running to to, to block yeah. things when they. That's a that's a must have if you're going to tether on a Mac. But it's interesting to me. I've, I've followed you for a really long time. I've known you a really long time, and and seeing you move stuff to the iPad that makes sense there for you but still remaining on the Mac for the things that make sense there really resonates with me. I, I My home base is the, is the Mac still, but there are certain tasks that I prefer to do on on the iPad. And I think you're a good example that like it doesn't have to be either or, that you can use both fluidly back and forth, and it doesn't have to be this like big thing. You can just use what works for you in a given situation. Yeah, and I feel like there's this size play where if you get like the smaller iPad, you can get a bigger Mac. And, there, and because there are three sizes roughly, and it was really five sizes, but there's the mini, the 10 and the, the 10 and the 9, and then or maybe even the 11 in there as well, and then the 12.9. You could sort of pick the one that fits you better. And the same with the Mac, and you can, you can make those trade-offs. 
And again, it's just there's, there are so, some things that the iPad feels ideally suited for. And, and that to me is just if I'm writing, I can have the notes app or drafts in one window and I can have Safari or, or a PDF that I'm working from on the other side of a split view. And the Mac is still horrible at split view. It's like they yelled it out at a keynote once and then never touched the code base again. And you can't even <laughs> switch split views. You have to like destroy it every time and then rebuild yes. it from scratch. And it's, it's, I love it, it's, but it's just so infuriating that up doing all of that on the iPad, but then Final Cut Pro and Photoshop um, and things that I want to drag and drop between windows just feels so much faster on the Mac. Yeah, I've got to the point on the Mac where split view for me is um, keyboard maestro commands that split the windows using the built-in system. It's it's like adding seven steps every time you want it to work. And and you have to, and like you said, you have to literally unwind it. You can't just push a button and make it go away and one doesn't even go away it goes to full screen and you gotta yes. go find it yes. <laughs> i had a, a call just the other day from a, a consulting client who you know she's like oh i, I ended up in this place on my mac and i don't know you know, don't know where my dock went don't know where my desktop went and i was like okay you know press the f3 key to go into mission control and sure enough she had somehow ended up in that split screen mode with mail and something else i don't remember and it's like what what is this mode i've never seen this before and on the Mac, it feels like every four or five years, Apple just burns down window window management <laughs> and rebuilds it. So we Partially. had Expose, <laughs> and then we had some other stuff, and they merged them into Mission Control, and then they added this other stuff on top of it. it. It just seems like there's better ways to do it on the Mac, but then the iPad also struggles. Like, it's just a hard problem, I think. Like, you know, 30 years into this, we haven't really figured out multiple windows yet. No, it's true. Like, I remember uh, people who weren't so tech-savvy in my family would call me and say, oh, Word is gone, Word is gone. And I would finally just arrive there, and it was behind uh, Safari, and they just couldn't find it because one window was on top of the other. And there's yeah. just, we're not very considerate to how, to the visual spacing of how people work. But that, but that full screen button really is murder for <laughs> novices because the app literally disappears off the screen and they don't yeah. know where it went. And yeah. it, it would never occur to them that there's another virtual space. But uh, <laughs> yeah, they could do they could do better there. One thing we didn't mention, Renee, and that's what I want to talk about just for a, a minute. I know that. And I believe I'm quoting you that you have an Apple Watch problem. <laughs> I have an Apple Watch. So I, it depends on how you phrase it. I have an Apple Watch band or, or strap problem. Okay. Or so like the Apple <laughs> Watch I find actually saw like because we, we've been watching all of well, a lot of our friends in the tech space and a lot of people on YouTube and just in general talk, complain about uh, phone addiction or social addiction. You know, they remove the apps from their phone or they get a crappy or they want to buy a Palm phone all of a sudden because it's a slave phone that's not as <laughs> right. good uh, or they want to use an old phone or whatever. And my Apple Watch solves all that because I can, uh, you can't get lost on Twitter on an Apple Watch. You can, I can read Stephen's message and not spend 18 other hours reading everyone else's message. But it's the bands are just the fastest way Apple has ever found to separate me from money. And I, I see them <laughs> and I know that they're going to go away because they are seasonal. And if I don't buy them when I first see them and I like them, I figure they're going to be gone. And it's mm-hmm. just, I have not been able to break that vicious, vicious cycle. <laughs> uh, so uh, they've gotten rid of the nylon one, right? It's now it's just yeah. the sport band and then the, what is it? The, what's the, what the Velcro line? The sport loop? The sport loop, uh, yeah. And they got rid yeah. of the classic buckle as well. Mm-hmm. So do, do you have a, a favorite, either past or present? 
I fall victim hard to those Hermes bands, which I know are ridiculous, but they're like, I, I would rationalize it by saying they're half the price of an actual Hermes watch band. <laughs> uh, they just look so good. And every year I'm like, I'm not going to buy it. And then they have a leather cuff. I'm not going to buy it. And they have a deployment. I'm not going to buy it. They have a rally. And this year I'm like, I'm not going to buy it. And then they have a three color band. And I just, every year I end up being a sucker and just buying it. But I love the the sport loops too. And I've said this before, they're like yoga pants for your wrist. It's just, if you want to be comfortable, get the sport loops and you can just adjust them all the time. Yeah. And, and it's really nice when you're typing like on a laptop, if you're worried about the buckle scratching or yeah. things like that, the sport loop is, is excellent for that. But now can you get the, I'm going to screw up the name. Is it Hermé? Is that how they say it? I don't even know how they Yeah, So I it. get yelled at all the time. It's technically Hermes on, in French because you, you got to roll the R and then mess. But I, I, I say it wrong all the time and get yelled but at. But you're from, you're from Quebec, man. Right. But I, I, you, you can't just, it's the same thing. Like I, I did a few years of Mandarin in college. So I say Guomingchi for the analyst and people say, no, his name is Mingchi Kuo. So if I pronounce it right, I get yelled at. And if I pronounce it wrong, I get yelled at. <laughs> so I think I'm just going to have fun with it. So, so now, now can you buy the band separately? Because I know it also has a custom face that everybody wants, you know. Um, yeah, you, you can you buy them buy separately, but you don't get the face. If you want the uh, face, you have to buy the package. Same with Nike. I, I like the I do partake in the band purchases as well. Now, are, are you a um, a purist? Do you just buy Apple stuff, or do you uh, go you know to the dirt uh, dark alleys of Amazon to purchase <laughs> bands as well? I have bought some Amazon bands. I've never like. I think if someone just wants a huge variety of bands that they're not going to wear very often, I think Amazon is ideal because you can save a ton of money and get a huge amount of variety. But I found just in my experience, they haven't been as well crafted and they don't last as long. And I went through this phase like three, four years ago that I blame Georgia Dow for. And that is I buy less things, but I buy better things. So I've yeah. gravitated towards um, not just Apple, but some of the bands that are that are just nicer and I'm going to wear for longer. Yeah. I mean, I, and I bought some of the, like the cheaper bands on Amazon. Uh, my wife and I at Christmas time said, oh, we want red bands for Christmas, you know, just for a couple parties, church, whatever. So we, uh, we ordered some red bands off Amazon. They were like 10 bucks and it was fine, but we wore them like two or three times. Yeah. You know, but the, uh, but you're right. I mean, one of them I got out of the box from Amazon and the little rubber, I, I want to call it bumper, but there's a little rubber like pad where it mates to the watch. Yeah, you know, there's there's three of them on. If you look at any of the Apple watches, this one had slots for three, but there were only two attached. You oh. know, it's like <laughs> something happened along the way. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I, I get it, man. And and it's funny because you know um, a lot of our friends and Stephen included are wondering if the Apple Watch is right for them. But like mm-hmm. you, I, I I right now my Apple Watch band matches my T-shirt today because that's how I roll, baby. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> No, it's it's true. Like I've talked to people now. I I have my app. I was gonna put it up today, but I did something else. I have an Apple Watch review six months later, and I just realized that in the early days for me it was all about convenience. And then I got really impressed by the life saving attributes of it. And now I've just realized it's basically ambient computing. And I have that at home with the home assistants, but this is just ambient computing everywhere. And it's never in my face or in my way. It's never a huge, you know, thirsty iPhone. It's just this real chill Apple watch that can either display or tell me things when I need it and just be, you know, sort of out of the way on my wrist when I don't, but it's, it's always available. And Stephen, I know you you covered this on Connected, but briefly tell the audience about fall detection because I heard you had a test. I did. So uh, about a week ago, went for a bike ride and 
the bike ride ended in a in a, a one person accident. What is <laughs> classified as that? Uh, felt pretty bad and a, an aggressive dismount, <laughs> an aggressive sudden dismount, and uh, and fall detection. Sure enough, I triggered it and it said, "Hey, you know, it looks like you've taken a bad fall." And it counts down and it's going to call you know emergency services and contact your uh, like emergency contact, which in my case is my spouse. Picked up my wrist to stop it, and then I realized that I'd shattered the screen to the watch, and uh, somehow it still worked, and I was able to cancel it because you know I was mostly okay. And, uh, and yeah, so it, it, uh, the fall detection does work and I did get that watch. I had Apple care plus I did get it, uh, replaced because I still like the watch for the fitness stuff. Like I talked about a couple weeks ago on MPU, I'm just not wearing it every day, but, um, yeah, it, it the fall detection, I mean, it, it's a huge thing. And if you have, you know, so for me at being 33 years old, it, it's not on by default, um, yeah. Renee, do you know how old you've got to be in health for it to turn on or for it I to prompt you? I think it's, I don't remember if it's 55 or 65, but I can double check that. So, somewhere in there. And yeah. you can, of course, you can manually turn it on. And I did it for this exact reason that I'm on a bike several times a week when it's nice outside. And, you know, things happen. And uh, sure enough, you know, if I had been, uh, you know, worse off and, and wasn't able to respond, I know that people would have known where I was. And that's that's a huge deal when it comes to safety, not only for, you know, maybe older relatives, but if you're just, you know, an active person out for a run or a bike ride. It's 65. And that's, that's, that's true. I mean, Georgia, again, my friend Georgia, she was home and going down her basement steps in her new house. And she kind of misjudged how slippery they were in her socks. And she ended up falling really, really hard. And her brother, who is you know much older, doesn't live with them, was just happened to be over and hurt her. But the uh, fall detection went off and it offered to call 911. And if he hadn't been there, she would have had to take it up on that offer. And she was just sold from that point on. We started getting them for everyone in our family who uh, would have any need for them. I really question that age uh, limit there because I feel like everybody could benefit from it. I have an acquaintance that fell very hard at home alone, and the only reason she lived through it was that her husband happened to come home soon enough to catch her. I mean, but she she would have died if you know if he hadn't come home when he did. And why you know I don't know I really don't understand why everybody doesn't just turn that on and why Apple doesn't just have it turned on by default. I guess. Maybe with kids, because they fall down so much, it wouldn't make sense. But, you know, for most grown-ups, I think we could all, it wouldn't hurt to have that protection. Yeah, and it feels like the false positives are so low that no one would really be annoyed by them. Yeah, I've never had it, you know, give me a, a false alarm. I thought, you know, maybe sometimes with mountain biking, if you come down hard, you don't fall, but, you know, you're getting jostled real hard. That maybe, and I, I have not been able to to trick it. They clearly, the engineers clearly did their work on what kind of data do you get in these sorts of types of situations? And you have to have that arm has to move in some way that's not n- normal for, for it mm-hmm. to go off. I think. Yeah, and I've had mine turned on since the watch released, and it's never gone off. I mean, I've, I've never had a bad fall, Same. but uh, so I guess so far it's working for me. Uh, now, now, Renee, are you still six months in? Uh, what you know, which watch faces are are your go tos at this point? So I use infographic uh, analog for almost 
all work day stuff because I have my calendar in the middle. I do miss time machines. I'd love to be able to just spin the little digital um, crown and see upcoming and maybe even past events. Uh, and then I have my activity rings just so that they're mindful. Uh, and I have drafts because I just tap that and talk and then it just saves everything that I want to possibly save for later. And the rest I move around. If I'm traveling a lot, I'll probably have a timer in there um, or the time local as opposed to the travel time. Uh, and sometimes I have weather there if it's rainy season or, season or snow season, which it usually is in Montreal. Mm-hmm. And then when I'm not working, um, to, it, it's sad it doesn't do this automatically yet, but when I'm not working, it just goes to Hermes, Hermes, Hermes most of the time because <laughs> it just looks so nice. Yeah, for me, you know, so I tried infographic. I really tried to make it work, but I block schedule my time. And yeah. the Siri watch face is so good for that. You know, you just scroll down, you see what's upcoming. Um, I'm back to Siri watch face, which I feel needs work. But yes, it's, it's the one for me. I've tried playing with the data sources, but I just always find there's either not enough or too much in there for me. Yeah. And even though they said with iOS 12, we were getting more data sources. There's there's very little third party yeah data source in there. I don't know what the algorithm is or what's going on, but I feel like that's not fully baked right now. Yeah. Steven, I know you don't use it much, but I guess I would assume you just use the, um, the fitness faces. Uh, the default actually is the infographic module or what is a modular? I'm, yeah. I'm not wearing my watch infograph mod- modular. That's a hard word to say modular with the calendar activity and then a couple of complications. But the one right to the right of it is the activity digital where you get the rings, but you also get the readouts and like really big numbers. And those are really the two I use most of the time. I have solar set up as well. It's like, I just, I think that's really a pretty one. And you know, if I wear the watch, on the weekend or something where I don't need all that data. Uh, but those are really the, the big three for me. And, and honestly, they all feel, you know, you mentioned the Siri face could use work. I think they should all be more flexible. I think we should have more options this far in. Sometimes I feel like that's still a little limiting. I would just love the photo face if it had more complications available because I, I'll turn them on or off to uncover like kids' faces or something else. Um, but just the ability to put, I could put, if I didn't have an Hermes watch, I could put that dew tone background on it. I could put Superman on it. I could put anything I wanted on it. And that would take me 90% of the way towards custom watch faces with very little effort. Yeah. I did a post at Max Sparky where I made some really cool Star Wars faces and you're right. They're nice, but there's very little information you can get when you use them. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by Omni Outliner. If you're working with lists or text like notes, uh, shopping lists, brainstorming, or even starting a book project, Omni Outliner is the way to go. Omni Outliner 5 Essentials includes the best way to get your writing and outlining done. You have full screen mode, and depending on your preference, you can even turn off the toolbar if you just want a minimal environment to be able to get words out of your brain onto the screen. You can turn on typewriter mode to keep your text center to eye level and use document zoom so everything stays readable. Omni Outliner even adapts your theme's colors with dark mode on macOS. Essentials is available for just $9.99 with upgrades available for $4.99 from any previous version of Omni Outliner. And you get support for things like keyword filtering, document stats, that distraction-free mode I talked about, uh, search, touch bar support, and much more. But if you need more power, you can check out Omni Outliner Pro 
This is the, an all-purpose tool for the Mac. You get things like smart columns, scriptability, custom style sheets, templates, and more. Things like saved filters and customizable keyboard shortcuts. Multiple row focus. You can even Excel. You can even export as Excel. It's very, really powerful to get your data in and out of Omni Outliner Pro. And it's available for $59.99, or you can upgrade from any previous version for just $29.99. And you can take all your outlines to go with Omni Outliner for iOS as well. You can sync these documents using the OmniPresence service from Omni Group between every Mac and iOS device you use. The backend's open source, so you can even install it on a server that you control and keep it all in-house. All Omni products include world-class phone and email support and a 30-day return policy. Learn more over at omnigroup.com. And if you're starting the next project, Look at Omni Outliner. So, Renee, you've been writing at iMore, it seems like, for a really uh, long time now. But now I get the sense that the Vector, your uh, YouTube show, is your your primary output. How did that transition come about? When did you decide that, hey, I, I want to move into this new medium? So it was a few things. One is that iMore just kept expanding. We try to do that. I mean, we have Android Central and Windows Central. And back in the day, we had CrackBerry. And it was very obvious how Windows Central and Android Central could expand because there's so many vendors in each space putting out so many products uh, all year, you know, every year. But it, when iMore was strictly Apple, there was sort of a hard limit on what we could cover because there was a hard limit on what Apple did every year. Uh, and then we slowly, you know, began with Serenity and it continued with Lori you know, when they took over the sort of the day-to-day -day management. We started doing things like adding Nintendo Switch uh, to the channel. And Lori recently has been doing a whole bunch of stuff with Polaroid, just find products that they think sort of fit the nerdy lifestyle of your typical Apple users. And I'm, I'm advocating heavily for Lego uh, to be next. Yes, please. Yeah, I totally, because those are sort of, we all have these geeky love, you know, nostalgia from the same sorts of companies. But as it was growing and the internet keeps getting harder and harder, like I don't know how much people are aware of this stuff, but uh, ad rates are terrible. Mobile ad rates are even worse. It feels like you're always under the thumb of Facebook or Google or Amazon. And a person uh, can make a decent living on the internet, but it's hard for a group of people. And we've seen that with a bunch of different sites over the years. And we were lucky or smart in that we never got like the huge offices in primetime San Francisco or New York. So our expenses are really low, but we still have, you know, it's like a dozen people working on each site. So we started doing more and more sort of, it's not exactly wire cutter style content, but it's not really the sort of classic news and classic editorial stuff either. And I, I wanted to be able to keep some of that old school sort of I'm more feel, but I'm more by definition is just more, more, more. So I tried to find a way that I could sort of live within that and be not a haven for like geeks, but just if people really still wanted and mostly wanted that sort of classic editorial stuff, they'd have a really easy place to find it. So I started doing that, just forcing myself to write daily editorials and then uh, I did the podcast because, you know, I've been doing podcasting for a while and that just seemed like a natural way to do it. And at the same time, we saw the audience changing. Back in the day, they would just stay on the tech blog and read it and hit refresh over and over again and live on RSS. But now there's so much competition. You know, maybe they'll see your story about the iPad, but maybe Kanye tweeted something or one of the Cardassians did something or something political happened. 
And now there's these fierce competition. Uh, tech used to be the biggest of everything. It was the biggest podcast. It was the biggest websites. And now I feel like it's a very small piece of a very, very big pie where like there's Makeup YouTube and Vox.com and all these other things just competing for attention. And going small for me sort of was my way of staying sane is not the right word, but being able to cope with how big everything else was getting. Well, it also gives you the ability. I mean, you had editorial control over at iMore, but I feel like when it's your own channel, you have the ultimate editorial control. Yeah, I mean, well, I, I smartly handed that over to Serenity Caldwell a couple of years ago, and now Lori Gill has taken that over because I just I found that the more day to day editorial I was doing, the less day to day content. I was doing and content for me has always been my favorite thing. And it's sort of like in, in, in engineering, there are some engineering managers like, like a Chris Latner who just codes all day anyway. And there are some engineering managers who can take 10 engineers under them and make them all like they're a force multiplier. And suddenly they're all coding 10 times as much. And I did that for a while, but then I just, I wasn't used to not seeing my name on the site anymore and not sort of being able to grab the topics I wanted to grab and talk about. And had to make a choice. So Serenity was very good at that. And she took that over. And then when she left, Lori Gill is perhaps the best organized person I've ever met. And is just so good at doing all that, that it sort of freed me up and given me the luxury to, to go back to just old school producing content every day. Mm -hmm. I think that's a really common struggle or transition people go through. You know, you mentioned it in engineering and that's totally true where developers become managers and some yeah. of them like it and some of them are good at it and some of them aren't and don't and you know, there's tension there but uh, I even feel that a little bit with what we do like at Relay right like we create podcasts but like we have a business so we can make the podcast and there's always that that back and forth because you need both sides if you want your content work to be able to pay the bills but um, I think it's neat that you were able to sort of transition back to where you wanted to be as a sort of a content creator first. Yeah. And it's, it's a lot of fun. It's exactly what you said when you're, when you are a manager though, at least when I felt that way, I felt like I always had to sacrifice my stuff for everybody else's stuff because they were the key. They were more important and I just had to help them get things done. And now I'm sacrificing other things for the content, but because I don't have to manage it, I don't feel guilty <laughs> doing that anymore. I mean, that makes sense. And, and but either way, you, you see, so you got started with this. And for us outsiders, it's been real fun watching you develop this over time. And it's really turned into something. How, how long have you been really seriously uh, making the YouTube videos? I mean, at what point did you decide, OK, this is a thing? It's been over a year, right? Yeah, it's been I started in February of last year. I think the HomePod was my first video uh, for this channel. And then I tried, I was just making so many mistakes that it took me a long time to make every video. So I managed to do maybe two a week and then maybe three a week. And then I sort of found my groove and I managed to go back into doing what I thought was like my normal schedule, which is, and it was very much inspired by just the, the way it was done was very much inspired by Joanna Stern because she would do these amazing videos and columns that went with them. And I loved the idea of being multimedia because especially as the audience is changing, some people just don't like reading or they don't process information while reading. Some people like listening so they can do it during a commute and they feel like they're spending their time instead of wasting their time. And other people are really visual, you know, or, or kinesthetic 
learners and they like to see things, how they relate to each other, what they look like. And sort of by doing it this way, I felt like I could at least try to cater to all three different types of audience. No, yeah, I get it. I mean, I, I've done the same thing. I mean, I don't make the books anymore. I make video courses because that's what people want. How have you found the sort of the transition from being a writer? You know, when, when you're writing or even when you're podcasting, the words are the focus. But when you're on video, all of a sudden people are are also engaged visually. There's, they're seeing you. They're seeing you interact with products. They're seeing your B-roll. And I, at least for my little like YouTube side project, have found that extremely sort of difficult to get used to. Um, and you seem very natural on camera. You seem very comfortable there. Was that something that sort of happened or did you have to work at that transition? No, you know, it's funny. When I when I did my first podcast, my best friend said, you sound terrible. Don't ever do this. You're wasting your time. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm going to do this until I get better at it. And I just did. And, you know, and, and thanks, huge thanks to Dieter Bowen, who was my boss at the time, because he let me do it no matter how bad I was at the beginning. And then I did, you know, 100 shows, a thousand shows and just kept going. And at the beginning, when I started doing video too, uh, people were like, no, don't do this. You know, you look very awkward behind the camera. It's not good. And I did the same thing. It's just, I made, you know, we always did the review videos for iMore, but I just tried making more and more video. And it, it is similar to podcasting, but at least the way pod, I've been doing podcasting is mostly in, in pairs or panels. And then I, there's a real good rhythm where you can bounce off of people uh, or go around people and sort of have these really rich conversations where YouTube, that does happen. But a lot of it is just the monologue, the solo speaker. And when I speak off the cuff, which is what I did for the first couple of months, I was just people just kept complaining that I was speaking too fast and they could not understand me. And I didn't understand why, because I'd always, I wasn't doing anything different than the podcast. But it, when I, when you added the visual layer, I guess it became harder to parse. So I've spent the last several months just trying every trick in the book I can to learn to speak slower and to take more pauses. And I don't know if I have to sign up for dub dub speaker training or something eventually, but just figure out how to better combine the words with what you said, the the B-roll and the visual information. So it's not like rapid fire, but is more, uh, I don't know, complimentary. Having spoken publicly a lot over my career, I can tell you the first rule is always talk slower than you think you should. Um, it's weird because people, I carry that into podcasts and then I hear from people who say, I always listen to you you know, I turn up the speed when I listen to you because you talk so slow. I think you're high, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, but it's just because I, over these years, you know, talking in front of people, I think on cameras very similar. You do need to go slower because the, you're pouring the fire hose into the, yeah. the brain at the other end has got a lot more, you know, ones and zeros going through it. How's that for a mixed metaphor? We yeah. To the yeah. levelator for speed. Well, it's, it is impressive. And then the other thing that's impressive is the number of topics you have and how quickly you're putting them out. And uh, I guess, I, how do you decide what you're going to cover? So I'm still relatively new to YouTube. And that means that uh, like the numbers you see for subscribers are never real. Like you, you put up a video and even when you see people with, you know, 100 million subscribers, and you look at how many people actually watch each video, it's always some fraction of that. In a good case, may, very few videos go above the subscribers. Those are really great when that happens because it means more people are discovering you. But often, especially for channels I publish mul multiple times, you see some fraction of that. And 
I, I, so I don't, I don't ever have a guaranteed audience. I feel like for everything. So I try to be topical enough that, uh, people who are interested in what is happening now, like if a new product comes out or there is some controversy or there's some big news story that if they're looking for that, there's a chance they'll find me. And that sort of keeps me. And that's what I was, I was news blogging and news podcasting for years. So it feels comfortable to me, but it also feels strategically good for me at the same time. Kind of scrolling through the, the YouTube page here, you know, you've got reviews, you have topical stories of responding to something that's going on you know, that day or that week. And I'd imagine those have potentially a shorter shelf life than something like a review where someone wants to buy an iPad Air three months from now, they may come across your review and it's just as relevant as it was. Do, do you think about those sorts of things when coming up with topics as far as how how long they may be useful to somebody? Yeah, I, I tried to do how-to videos because I thought those would be really useful over time. And those are, I think, my worst performing videos. And, and YouTube itself is great for how-to videos. People learn all sorts of stuff. Educational YouTube is huge just for some reason. And I don't know if YouTube works the same way as Google does where you have a ranking or like the algorithm pigeonholes you and decides if there's Apple news, we'll show people Renee's video, but I don't understand this how to stuff. So we'll just keep that buried. I don't know how that works, but, uh, mostly it's the stuff that is very current. That's done well for me. And also I think YouTube for a while, there was sort of like, I want to call it the Forbes consult contributor network effect where if you could just put up even the same, oh, it's huge bug in iOS 10.1, oh, huge bug in iOS 10.2, huge bug in iOS 10.3, you would each one of those would just get unlimited attention. Uh, and I, so I've been trying to react to some of those and say, like, either, yes, it is a problem, but this is the fix, or no, it's not a problem, or, oh, my God, 720p screen in 2018, you know, Apple's doom sort of stuff. Like if you mm. could get your iPhone to make a buzzing noise, something like that. Hey, hey. I don't <laughs> well, talk I about mean, that. like if, if it exploded in your hand or if, yeah. if it teleported you the way Kevin, uh, Kevin Lynch's Apple Watch teleports him, that'd be great. Yeah, it's not surprising that sensationalism works on YouTube just like it does everywhere else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think it's just like you can cover any topic, but I think at the end of the day, are you doing it to get something from your audience or to give something to your audience? And if you're doing it to get something, I think inevitably the product is worse and the content is is sort of shallow or hollow. And if you're doing it yeah. to get even the exact same topic, if you're doing it to, to inform, to empower, you know, to to build up your audience, then that exact same content is tremendous. I, I, I really like the approach you're taking. I, I feel like Steven does the same thing. I feel like I yeah. do the same thing. To the extent, I mean, we're much smaller presence on YouTube, but it, it's like just one more way to share something with the audience. And and I think people appreciate that if you can do a decent job of it. And actually, right after this, I want to talk about the technology involved because your production has got some, I think you've got some pretty cool uh, production tricks. Let's talk about those next. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by 1Password, the safe and secure way to create and manage your passwords. Go to onepasswordcom MPU in all caps to get 20% off. Sometimes I meet Mac Power Users listeners who tell me they don't need a password manager app because they're really good at managing their own passwords. But the problem is it's just not on you. We're hearing increasingly about big companies storing passwords poorly and putting you at risk. 
Even if you have great password security, if the guy on the other end isn't storing your password safely, you're at risk. And that's why 1Password is so great. It not only helps you create and manage these passwords, you can create new ones when there are data breaches like this. They even have a service called Watchtower that will let you know when a company has had a data breach or some problem like this and remind you to go in and change the password. That's why the Watchtower service, which is part of your 1Password subscription, is so useful. They keep track of this stuff so you don't have to. Then when you go and open the application, Watchtower tells you the ones you need to go in and set a new password for. I think it's great and I use it all the time. That's not all you get with a 1Password subscription though. You also get access to all the recent versions of 1Password application and all the platforms it ships on. You get the convenience of having your passwords safely available to you at your fingertips. I love the way it uses Face ID to unlock the application on the iPhone and the iPad Pro. And you get security because at 1Password, privacy is the top priority. Trusted by over 15 million users, myself included, 1Password is a great place to protect your internet security. Head over to onepassword.com slash MPU in all caps to get 20% off your subscription. Thanks, 1Password, for all of your support of the Mac Power users. So, Renee, how did you get started? Um, if you want to make a video, I mean, what, what kind of gear are you using? Uh, I usually write it on my iPad just in the same mode that I told you. So, like, I'll do an outline and see if I have enough content to actually do a video or have something interesting to say uh, to have a video. And then I record right now with Panasonic GH5 cameras uh, just because those were sort of, they gave, when I was looking to buy cameras, and I bought two of them just so that the B-roll and the A-roll would mix, even though I ended up doing almost all my B-roll on iPhones. Uh, and I got, you know, just a lens because I did want to have, I feel A-roll isn't that interesting when there's when there's no bokeh or no depth of field. It sort of just elevates it a little bit. So I have that camera set up and I use uh, Joel Chaplinsky's uh, Teleprompter 3 to sort of either put up bullet points or segments of things I want to make sure I get technically accurate. Uh, sometimes whole segments of things if I know I'm going to speak too fast through them and I want something to deliberately slow me down. And then I typically... I have a bunch of hue lights around me so I can change the colors to whatever I want. And I try to mix those up on a daily basis. I use a Hale PR40 mic for podcasting. I just got a Sennheiser shotgun mic that I want to try out for video because the Hale's on like a... I've got like the desk set and I feel like I need to start moving around more. Um, and it's just the, the Hale mic is not that easy to move around or it's in frame or a lot of things. So I'm experimenting with the audio and that goes into a uh, USB Pre 2, sound devices, USB Pre 2 interface. And I record that on the Mac. I have the USB Pre 3 that Alex Lindsay is telling me I need to switch to because you can record locally right on it. I just haven't had time to make that switch yet. And then I just, I, I ingest everything into Final Cut and I uh, synchronize the audio and the video, and I just learned, uh, I got a note from someone on the Final Cut team that instead of doing a synchronized clip, I should stick to a compound clip, or I prefer multi-cam clips, because then you can go back and change any part of the audio or video, and that'll be reflected in the timeline, and I end up doing that a lot, so it saves me a lot of re-editing now. 
that All I right, that so I figured out that trick. There's a lot to unpack there. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> no worries. The uh, just so let's kind of go back to the beginning. You said you write these on your iPad. Do you have a particular app or workflow you use for that? Uh, I was using Notes just because they were syncing between the um, iOS and macOS. Sure. Perfectly, and now I'm I'm using drafts because that's come to the Mac. And yeah. I, I don't know if I'll stay with drafts or go back to just the simplicity of notes. Uh, if notes had a plain text mode, I'd probably use that. But I love that I can dictate something into my Apple Watch in drafts and it just shows up on my computer or my tablet and you know, even my phone and, and go from there. Yeah, but it sounds like you're not doing scripts so much as you're doing outlines and concepts. Yeah. Yeah. I would probably use Highland if I was using scripts. That's John August app because it is just so good at that. Yeah. But I would be paying more attention to being correct with my format than just getting stuff down. Yeah. And it's not easy in front of camera reading a script. Yeah. yeah. As silly as that sounds, sometimes it's easier just to kind of shuck and jive a bit. Yeah, totally. And so then, and then you take that once you finish it. And now do you, do you, do you like have a target you're shooting for, for length? I know that like with YouTube with like, there's certain like minute counts you want to hit if you want to get into the advertising game and all that stuff. Do you have to worry about that stuff when you're doing the outline? I don't use YouTube ads. I have sponsors, almost like a podcast. I just sort of carry them over from my podcast to the video show. Sure. So I don't I don't turn on any of the YouTube stuff. I have heard you should aim for 10 minutes, but I try to keep it organic. And if, it's, if it is at 10 minutes and I don't like a segment, I don't think twice about pulling it out and going under 10 minutes. So I try to just... I, I'm very conscious of never wasting my audience's time because I know, again, time is that one thing they can never get more of. So I always try to to give as much as I can in as short a period of time as possible. And that's that's usually my goal. The, uh, now, you also said for lighting, you're using hue lights. Are you using any additional like um, video lighting or is it just all the hue lights? I ha So the place that I moved to that I film in, it's got uh, windows on two sides of it right in front of me and to the left of me so i mostly have wow. nice. a bunch of hue lights on the right yeah it's great i mean so sometimes it can be moody so like it'll be super bright and then go dark during the film and I have to stop and redo everything because natural light is temperamental uh, Clouds, but it's really yeah. nice yeah totally it's really nice when you have it i have these by um bicolor lights that i used to use in my old studio i haven't set them up yet but i've been thinking about it just so that i can get better control over the or or just do more stuff at night if i have to mm -hmm. yeah or if it's cloudy outside it's like yeah. well no video today <laughs> uh i'm really interested in your choice uh in the panasonic gh5 what prompted uh that that purchase so I have I have I was shooting with Canons and I had a 5D Mark III that I really love and I love the Canon lenses, but mm -hmm. you, it just it would only do 1080p video and the sensor would overheat yeah. so fast that I couldn't do long enough video. So I was looking for something else and I looked at the Sony because it's just so it produces just such beautiful film. Um, and it's totally incorrect to use film in that context, but I'm using it anyway. But it just like it wasn't as e I, like I wasn't sure if, uh, how much I was going to be vlogging or how much I'd be shooting alone, and whether I needed to be able to flip the the viewfinder back so that I could see it, uh, and those sorts of things. Um, that just made me reticent to go all in with the Sony. And right now, I mean, uh, people like Stallman are doing me no favors by talking about that C200 camera over and over again. I just want to keep myself super poor, so I'm not even tempted to look at that camera but I, so there are probably better cameras like I, I don't think i'd ever need a ridiculous red or what's the other one alexa alexis i forget the yeah. alexa mini yeah 
uh, anything like that. But uh, my goal is to get as good as I can out of as small as I can. Yeah, I I, I went with the Sony, and you're totally right. Like I, when I do my videos, I'm alone, and so I ended up buying an external display yeah. for mine uh, by a company called Small HD. But uh, you know, and then you got to like plug that in, and it has its own battery, and it uses this like terrible little. Uh, HD cable that yeah. just feels like the, the flimsiest thing in the world. Um, but I, I do know, and maybe it's better now, but I think when the GH5 came out, people had complained that the autofocus in particular was pretty hit or miss. Is that something that you use or is it just set to manual focus and you know where to sit and it never moves? I use manual focus most of the time. I did bring it with me to one iPhone event and it was after they quote unquote fixed the autofocus, but it's still like coming from Canon, it's not speedy. Like Canon's dual pixel uh, autofocus is magic compared to what Panasonic is doing. And it's the only reason why I'm still tempted to go back to Canon at some point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the trick with that too is, is you said earlier, you want bokeh, yeah. which is another word I probably mispronounced, but either way, that focus is is hard if you want to have a blurry background. You know, you can set the f-stop high enough where you're just always in focus, but then you lose the advantage of why you bought the camera in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. So you've got that set up, and I want to talk about B-roll. Let's just do that right now as well. Something that um, folks listening may not think about, but this is actually something you could even use in your family videos, is the idea of having additional footage while you're talking or things are going on. You see it on TV and in the movies all the time. Um why not bring it into your videos? And it's something you do quite often. I was just watching the video this morning you made about picking an iPad size. Yeah. And by the way, I forgot how big the bezels were on the original iPad to watch right. your video. And I was like, <laughs> yeah. I cannot believe that, you know? Yeah, you could drive your car around the screen of that thing. But yeah, at the time it was it was amazing, but wow, in hindsight, those are big bezels. But anyway, yep. uh, you, you used tons of B-roll in that. And some of it was looked like video you'd shot, some of it looked like stuff you got from Apple. Yep. But um, it was very effective use because you're sitting there talking about the device and, and the listeners or, or the uh, watchers can see the specifics as you're doing it. But but you said you do that with your, your iPhone now. Yeah. So I, before I started, I was watching a bunch of different things. And you can go, I'll name some like super famous examples, but you can go from like uh, Philip DeFranco, whose B-roll consists of him sticking the logo or picture of whatever he's talking about in one of the many corners of his video. And maybe there's like eight at any given time sometimes. And the rest is just him talking. So there's almost no B-roll. And then you get to someone like uh, who works with me, Michael Fisher. Uh, he does the YouTube channel, The Mr. Mobile, and it is almost entirely B-roll. He never talks, as far as I remember, he never talks to camera. And there's some in between where they're you know, like the Verge style, where Neil or Dieter will talk to the camera, but then they'll cut to the different um, B-roll. And then you even get stuff like Peter McKinnon, where he's talking all the time, and then there'll be literal breaks in him talking with music and either buttery smooth or super staccato B-roll. And I was trying to figure out something that I could do, but I could do every day. And since I'm not, I'm not really great at this stuff yet, that I could do a, a lot of things with. And I tried. I had different cameras set up, and I was using a, a second GH5 for that, and I was using my Canon for that. And just the iPhone shoots in 4K, and like you mentioned, uh, it, it's almost always in focus, and the color science is so good. I mean, I don't. I think that's underappreciated that it goes from capturing wide gamut through the lens to displaying it on the screen with everything in between 
just without you even having to think about it. And I've shot with drones and with other cameras now and almost always had to fix up the color and I very seldom do with an iPhone and that saves huge amounts of time. So, and you, they're so small, you can get them almost everywhere into any corner as close as you want, as far away as you want. So it just ended up being um, easier and I think better quality to shoot with the iPhone for a lot of the B-roll. And you, and you are editing and uploading in 4K, right? Yeah, I didn't originally. Yeah, so you're not you're not punching it down. No, I did for the first six months. I think I would I would edit down to 1080p, and that gave me a lot more freedom in moving around and fixing things. But I just people kept complaining it wasn't 4K, and I wasn't good enough at ignoring them, and so I ended up uploading in 4K. And then it's hard to go back. Oh, definitely. Um, it's nice too because you know people. Yes, even sitting in my iMac Pro, right? If you if I'm in Chrome and because Safari doesn't support it, uh, yeah. I can watch this, you know, and make it full screen. And it looks really good, or I could watch it on uh, a television. So it gives people, I think, just more options, which is which is nice. Yeah, I agreed. And, and then audio, which is always the problem for anybody yes. that wants to make video. I mean, to me, it's my biggest problem with the video I make still. Um, now you, you were using the Heil, uh, you, I guess you had it in front of you on screen because that's, Mike's got to be pretty close to your mouth in, in order for it to work. Yeah. I was using that, uh, just for podcasts for the longest time. Like, I don't know, years since I started on Mac break, it probably before I started on Mac break, it was just because everyone at Twit was using it. So I just started using it. And then when I went to video, I've tried, I have three or four different labs sitting over there and I have a, a, two or three different road shotguns. And I've always been looking for just that magic solution because everyone on YouTube just sounds so good all the time. And mine always sounded echoey or rough or something else. And even now when I'm experimenting with the Sennheiser, it just, it sounds rough to me. I just, I think the room is echoey and I've been treating it, but you know, it's a huge, as much as it lets all that light in, it's a huge room with lots of walls and lots of things in it. So I've really been struggling with that and with you know, I use plugins like uh, like RX, which you know does great stuff, but it's still a plugin. So I feel like audio is still like the weakest part. Ironically, coming from podcasting, well, audio is the weakest part, and it's still something I'm putting a lot of time into. Yeah, it's it's super tricky. I've tried a bunch of things too, and you know, I think I think your initial fi- fix is like I'm just going to have the mic in frame with me. Like you know what, that totally works if your set supports it. Yeah, and I would I would keep doing it, but I want to be able to to alternate between two or three sets that wouldn't be as easy. So that's why I've been experimenting again. And then uh, in Final Cut Pro processing, um, so for listeners who are iMovie users, one of the things that everybody that moves up to Logic, I'm sorry, uh, I, um, Final Cut loves is the fact that you can have these multi shots. You know, you can bring in footage from. Uh, you know, multiple iPhones. We had Wally Cherwinski on the show years ago to kind of walk through listeners how to do that. Uh, it's amazing. And one of the nice things is you can get the audio. You, you don't have to use the audio from the main camera. You can, and the, it uses audio to sync those video tracks together. So you can be like a fancy pants video producer and, and jump between multiple uh, shots. And that's, I guess, what you were doing before. Correct. Yeah, I mean, I've been using. I, I started editing on a on a video toaster a long time ago, and then stopped for many many years. And I used iMovie briefly, but then we had this big thing going on called Talk Mobile 2013, where we had a, a bunch of different people doing all these interviews. And at one point, we did a three camera shoot, and we didn't have a video editor, and because I was the only one there who had ever done it. 
I was tasked with doing this and getting it up as fast as possible. And I just ended up talking to our editor. Back then it was Martin Reich. Um, and he talked me through how to do a three camera edit within five minutes and Final Cut made it so easy that that I, you know, I, I literally learned how to do it in five minutes and made a usable video and I couldn't believe it. And I, that ability just stuck with me and now I don't want to give it up. No, exactly. It's really easy to set that up. You can go on YouTube of all places, right? And learn this skill in probably <laughs> yep. five minutes. But the, um, but you were explaining a new technique that was recommended to you by some of the Apple gang. And I didn't, I didn't get it. Could you explain that a little bit? Yeah. So what I was doing was just if I just for the A cam. So before I did anything else, I would pull in the video from the camera and the audio from the microphone. And then I would uh, just right click and say synchronize clips and Final Cut would put both of those things together and make it into a synchronized clip. And Final Cut has different options. Like you have compound clips, synchronized clips, multicam clips. And what I didn't realize is that with a synchronized clip, there's no parent-child relationship. So if I would put the A roll in the main timeline and then stack B roll onto it, and I'd want to go back and change something in the A roll, I would have to do a clip by clip, which was very time intensive. So I stopped doing the synchronized clip and I switched to using multicam, which also syncs any audio source together along with the associated video. So functionally it was the same, but it maintains that parent-child relationship. So I could go right back to the media browser, open that multicam clip, change the color grade or mask something or do anything I needed to. And that'd be reflected in every edit that I'd already made in the timeline, which was a huge improvement for me. Yeah, but it's not a question of combining audio. It's just a question of simplifying the edit. Yeah, absolutely. And then okay. because previously I could lock that into a multicam, but I couldn't go back to the source. So it was just, it was a way for me to be able to continually edit the A-roll if I needed to. Well, I think at some point you're going to have to do a video on how you make your videos. <laughs> I did one on how to do uh, two by one video when I switched to that. That was my first attempt at a Final Cut tutorial. You do you do all your work in Final Cut as well, Stephen, right? Uh, I, I do. Uh, and I have, I mean, I pay for the Adobe CC suite of programs, but Final Cut is much better tuned for Mac hardware. It seems like anything you see or watch comparing the two, the speeds are so much better out of Final Cut. And honestly, as someone who had very little video editing background, just jumping right to Final Cut was actually not nearly as hard or intimidating as I thought it would be. And I think something like Premiere is maybe a little bit uh, a little bit scarier to just walk into, right? There's a lot of things going on in there. And I found Final Cut, it took me a while to get my feet under me. But once I did, you know, it, it wasn't as bad as, as you may think. So is the whole production um, workflow through Mac and not, nothing on iOS? Well, I guess except the writing. Yeah, well, once in a while, I, um, I've pulled stuff into Ferrite and just done the leveling there because the audio sources were too different for me to be able to manually talk. And I have tried editing. Like, I've watched Serenity Caldwell edit on an on iPad, and, you know, she's like a, a real quote-unquote editor. She's She can make movies. It's amazing. I just don't have that ability yet, and I feel like the time it would take for me to do it. And I've seen, like, videos of Jonathan Morrison editing on an iPad, and it's amazing. I, I just know, I just don't have the skill to do that yet. Yeah, and like you were saying earlier, you've got the workflow. Right now, it's more important to produce stuff than to fiddle around. What's the hardest part for you in that process? 
the t- finding B-roll for everything or shooting B-roll for everything is time intensive. Uh, like, like getting the A-roll done to me is like getting a podcast done where I can sit down and I can record it. But then having to find visuals to match everything that I'm saying uh, is quite often a much longer process and always longer than I think it'll going to be. When you shoot your B-roll with your phone, like, do you have like panning equipment or do you just hold it and you know move slowly both i've done both like i have a tripod uh with an ipad an iphone holder on it and i've used that to do pans and i have a slider that i haven't set up yet um and then other times i just and i and i stole this i stole everything from serenity but i stole this too is that you can do some really interesting shots because the iphone is so light and and so mobile that you can't really do with traditional equipment and some of them just look really interesting yeah and then um well it's it comes out looking great that's impressive thank you so what's the part that you thought you would never master but feels pretty good to you now, you know, after a year and a half? I guess one of the things that was hard coming from a traditional, like, Apple blogger background was sort of the culture of YouTube. Because it just everything from how you name things to how you talk about things is is very different. And I was always a little bit conservative, where YouTube is always, is like very much the opposite of that. And just coming to terms with... Everything from like asking people to subscribe, which to me is like, ah, you don't do that. That's just, that's not Canadian. Come on. Uh, To just wrapping my my head around. And a friend of mine who was a journalist for a long time in the US, he's like, what, you don't want people to read you? And he'd always be saying that to me. And I'd be like, yeah, but it's just not, it's not couth to, you know, it's uncouth to say it. And I've had to sort of leave that aside because it was, it it was very evident to me very early on that if, if you acted different than YouTube, you were treated different than YouTube. And that was not a path to success. Yeah, Yeah, I want to get more into that in a second. But before we get there, say someone's listening and they feel inspired, or maybe they've played with a couple of videos and they're and they're struggling. What what sort of advice would you give to somebody in the early stages of getting into this? Uh, I mean, it's going to sound very very trite, but like pick a topic that you really know backwards and forwards, and start with that because there's so many other things to worry about that if you're worried about. The, the core material, I think that just makes it unmanageable. And then don't be afraid to be bad until you're good. Like I, I made a ton of videos. And even when I started a new podcast, I do a ton of episodes sometimes that I never use. I've written versions of articles that I've never published. Don't be afraid to be bad at something until you're good at it. Because if you, if, if it's not, you're watching people who've made videos for 10 years and they've gotten real good at it over those 10 years. And if yours doesn't stack up to that, you shouldn't quit. You should put in those 10 years. Yeah, that that's always what I tell people. Or if, if we're working with somebody to start a new show, it's like produce some work that is never going to be seen past this really close circle, yeah. right? Like you know, uh, in the music world, it'd be like demos. Like you're going to record something to get the idea of it out, and then we can focus on some of these issues that come up. But that practice can be really invaluable. It is kind of frustrating. Like all you want to do is hit the publish button, but if you take that time, I think it can be really beneficial in the long run. Yeah. And the last sort of thing is like, it doesn't have to be perfect. You know, like it, it will never be perfect. You'll always spot flaws and mistakes and nobody else would. So that advice you get when you, when you were an art teacher in school, it's like no one to take the paper away from the kid. And I still mm-hmm. feel like that's the thing you've got to, you've got to realize when you've done the best you can do in the time that you have and with the skill that you have at the moment and be happy with that. And then uh, the other thing I really like is conscientious, uh, conscious repetition. Don't just do things over and over again because that's robotic. But every time, pick something. You can't pick everything, but if you did one video 
and you're not happy with five elements of it, pick one and then work mm-hmm. on that until you're better and then pick the next one. But just always strive. If you're not happy with the audio, fix one thing and see if it's better and then fix another thing and see if it's better and always try to make the next one better than the one before. This episode of Mac Power Users is brought to you by Eero. With Eero, you can build a Wi-Fi system perfectly tailored to your home. We all live in this new high-bandwidth world, and we need distributed systems in our homes to make sure we all get the best speeds available. And with Eero, you can install an enterprise-grade Wi-Fi system in your home in just a few minutes. At the heart of this is the second-gen Eero device. It has three 5 gigahertz radios, which allow for increased speed and range. It sits flat on any surface, connecting either with Ethernet or wirelessly. Then you go out and expand the coverage throughout your whole home by adding in Eero beacons. These are small devices that plug directly into the wall, allowing you to reach every corner of your home. And Eero now has Eero Plus. It is designed to provide simple, reliable security to help defend all the devices in your home from malware, phishing, and unsuitable content. Eero Plus automatically tags sites that contain violent, illegal, or adult content, so you'll have powerful parental controls at your fingertips. It includes ad-blocking functionality to improve load times for websites and get rid of those privacy-invading ad-tracking bits of code we see all over the web. And it's even possible to have Eero Plus check the sites you visit against a database of millions of threats to prevent you from visiting anything malicious. Europlus even has subscriptions to things like 1Password, uh, Malware, Antibytes, and Encrypt.me. I've been using Europlus in my home, and I like knowing that my kids are safe out on the web. In case they stumble into anything, Euro would block that from loading on their iPads or on the computer they may be on. And it's really easy to set up. I can manage it all from the Euro app right on the iPhone. No web dashboard to log into. I can just do it from anywhere I am as long as I have my iPhone with me. So never think about Wi-Fi again. Get $100 off the Eero base unit and two beacons package and one year of Eero Plus. Just head over to Eero.com slash MPU and at checkout use the promo code MPU. That's E-E-R-O dot slash MPU and the code MPU. Our thanks to Eero for their support of this show and Relay FM. So let's get back to the discussion about YouTube as a platform. It's it's so different than the blogging world that at least the three of us have spent a lot of time in where you publish something, it goes out over RSS, anyone subscribed to it sees it, they can visit the homepage, they can see it. But in YouTube, you are in a sense competing with a bunch of other pieces uh, of content and uh, you spoke a little bit about that earlier, but I wonder, you know, is that something that you find uh, even now, a year and a half into this, that you find difficult to to deal with, or you know, does it have demands of you that you don't want to make? Like, how is that relationship between content creator for you and then the algorithm on the other side? So, I kind of there's some things I really like about it. Uh, one of the things is it's one platform, so it's in everyone's best interest to sort of raise all boats. And what I mean by that is, without naming names because we all know who they are, there's a lot of institutionalized blogging that, especially in the early days. They only cared about themselves. It was, you know, they would do, they would rewrite your article, they would bury the link as much as, much as they can, and try to get people to spend time on their page and never go anywhere else. And it, you know, and if they went, they wouldn't mention other sites because anytime you spent on somebody else's site, you weren't spending on their site. And they were sort of designed for SEO and, and time on page. And that led to, 
a very competitive and sometimes not the nicest of spirits, especially among the bigger blogging companies. Um, with podcasts, you know, there's wonderful things like the directory, but if I listen to the connected episode about WWDC, outside of a few apps, it's not going to recommend the upgrade episode about WWDC, the the talk show about WWDC, the ATP about WWDC. It might recommend a few other podcasts in general that people listen to, but on an episode, episode by episode basis, there's just no real discovery engine. And the nice thing about YouTube is, if Stephen and I publish our iMac reviews on the same day, I could be watching his and, you know, mine will pop up next to it. And then there'll be like Marquez's on top of that and somebody else's. And if I'm really interested in that topic, I'll find those videos and find Stephen and find Marquez and find these other people. And it leads to sort of a growth per episode and a growth per artist that I think just doesn't exist anywhere else. And because we all sort of are promoting each other in that recommended list, people in general, uh, my experience at least, is everyone wants everyone to succeed because, you know, the better experience somebody has, the more likely you are to click on the next video, which could well be theirs. And it's all for YouTube's benefit. And I never want to lose sight of that because it's not like a bunch of different independent websites and different, it's it very much for Google and YouTube. But within that sort of reality, there's a lot of opportunity, I think. I think there's been a lot of talk about that sort of thing recently with, you know, the conversation of social media addiction, which you mentioned earlier in reference to the Apple Watch, but also the idea of like a, a filter bubble or I'm only seeing what I'm interested in, you know? So to take that example, Someone wants to see about the new IMAX. They can watch, you know, eight IMAX videos and, and get, you know, a bunch of different viewpoints on it. But they're going to kind of stay in that Apple IMAX world yeah. for that experience. They're not going to jump out to something like, you know, building your first gaming PC or something. And of course, that applies to way more than tech. It's particularly relevant in politics and news. But that's not what we talk about on the show. This is a happy place. Well, they'll also um, like recommend the why Apple sucks video very quickly and then why we're all doing yeah, sure. video. So they'll sure. go right down that rabbit hole. <laughs> Yeah. So how do you think about that? Not as necessarily as a content creator, but as a consumer of this stuff, we all watch a bunch of YouTube. Do you think that that sort of recommendation engine, that that is overall a positive thing or, or, or not? I think it, in concept, it's hugely positive. I think in execution, because uh, companies like Facebook and Google have not been good corporate citizens and used it sort of to capture attention rather than to fulfill audience. Again, it's that sort of what the intent behind it is. Uh, it's been misused. Like I, I watched one video on the Marianas Trench and got Megalodon videos for a week. And I just, I don't know how to handle that because there doesn't seem to be any way to get rid of them. And if, I find that YouTube very quickly leads you down the worst possible path of any subject. Um, but at the same time, at least in, in tech, I don't get that much of it. I do get much more of the other tech reviewer or tech editorialist stuff. So maybe I'm uh, maybe I'm not giving it the sort of horror that it's due <laughs> just because of the niche that I fall into. So that's very true. And that's why I meant it had like real positives and real negatives associated to it. And I don't think there's a perfect way because there are some like super awesome bloggers like you and, and Gruber and Dalrymple who will just link to tons of other stuff. And it's very human and very curated. You know, and Jason does that too. Um, and then you're sort of providing uh, access to a greater community without the terrible stuff going on. And that's probably the ideal. Uh, we just haven't really found a good way to scale it yet. The, the size of YouTube alone makes this a very complicated yeah. subject. Like the hours of video uploaded every second 
you know, it's mind blowing, honestly, how much content there is and that it can do as good of a job as it does, problems included, uh, at this sort of thing. It's 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 I, I hard. It's hard to wrap my mind around it, honestly. Yeah. I, yeah. I honestly don't think it's that good. I mean, I, I keep hearing how smart the YouTube algorithm is, but my personal experience is the stuff that it usually recommends to me is garbage. And I've taken a very old school approach to YouTube where I found trusted sources like Steven and Renee, for instance, and I, I subscribe and I just go through my channel list to see what's new every once in a while and kind of go outside the system because I, you know, it is crazy. You watch one video about something somewhat different than what you usually watch. And then yes. suddenly the algorithm is very excited and wants to just yeah. throw <laughs> this stuff at you. And yeah, you know, and yeah. you regret, <laughs> you regret that you went off the reservation for one video. You know, it's the crazy. worst part for me is I'll watch, like I'll watch a CBC news uh, show. And then my entire recommended is people who have re-uploaded other people's news shows. Yeah. Not even like the original source. But yeah, it's quite quite the this the complicated thing to to operate within, especially daily, right? Like for, for what I do, uploading a video every, you know, four to six to eight weeks. Um I, I'm not uploading enough to I think to really interact with that much. I've definitely had videos go big um and, and kind of get pulled in, but other times I don't, and that's fine because it's not my business, it's a side project, but I would imagine like dealing with it daily is kind of a different feeling. Yeah, I just I made a deal with myself early on that I was not going to sweat the individual videos. Like if I think there's something okay. that's problematic for the channel in general, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll want to address it. But I have no control over that. All I can do is try to make the best videos I can on any given day. And if it turns out those are incompatible with YouTube, eventually I'll have to deal with that. But I think just trying to be in the mind of the beast is that thing where eventually that the beast looks back at you. I just don't ever want to have that moment. Well, speaking of the beast, YouTube comments. I mean, yeah. you've got big enough that you your comments aren't, you know, universal love and adoration. No, <laughs> and they were like that from the... I mean, we, I've always... One of the, the, the gifts and the curses of, of the company that I work for is even in blogging, we had the, the separate platforms. So Android Central, Windows Central, iMore, but there was one login. So they would go from site to site. And I swear for a while, Android people were commenting on iMore articles more than Apple people. Uh, and it was exactly the sort of comment that you probably anticipate it would be. And almost like there was this migrant population of, Nokia, of really angry Nokia fans who became angry BlackBerry <laughs> fans, who became angry Android fans. Um, mm -hmm. And it's not so much that they liked what they had, they disliked what other people had. And I find YouTube has sort of fallen into that as well, where there are some comments that just make your day every day. And there, there are some comments that make you doubt that humanity will ever pass the great filter on other days. Is that something that you uh, you actively police? Like I know in YouTube studio, which I want to talk about, I want to talk about the yeah. administrative side of YouTube in a second, but are you looking through those comments? Are you replying to them? Are you blocking people? Or do you just sort of say this is what it is and I don't want to get pulled into it. So I, I look at the comments, like the old, like the older the video is, the less I, I see it, but I do try to look at what comments have come in on any given day. And my reaction is just like, you know, if I want human beings to be able to look at these comments. So if someone disagrees with me, that's great. Um, and if they say something sort of snide, that's fine too. If someone says something that is either criminal or just, I, I believe, falls below the basic guidelines of humanity, then I do that shadow ban feature, the hide, channel, hide user from channel, which is mm -hmm. great because I don't think they know they're hidden. So they're probably rage commenting on every video, but no one else has to see it. And that sort of feels like the best of both worlds. 
So overall, I mean, with the, it is a big transition from what you were doing to what you are doing. Uh, are you happy with it? Yeah, it really feels like blogging did 10 years ago to me where it's sort of, it's new, it's fresh. Uh, and just creatively, um, I've been doing blogging and podcasting and by no means where I was I really good at either one of them, but it was getting to the point where I'd wake up, I'd see the stories and it was a bit like chopping wood. And that's really useful. I mean, you need that wood chopped, but YouTube is scary and new and difficult and I'm failing at it all the time. And that sort of is intriguing. That's like really interesting. And it's the same topic. So I still get to do what I love, but just in a way that's forcing me to, to be like a little student again. And I really like that. It's always fun building different muscles. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about the YouTube Creator Suite. You know, I didn't realize what a big tool that was for for folks. Um, how often are you in there, and and what what's your favorite parts about it? So I have to confess, I don't use it that much. Like I've never, I, and I've never used blog analytics that much. And I hope my boss doesn't listen to this. But you know, I know that they're useful in a bunch of ways. But I I come from a background previous to doing media. I was uh, product marketing for analytical databases, ad hoc uh, query engines, all those sorts of things. And it got to a point where I just realized that giving humans data is a two-edged sword because data by itself doesn't tell you anything. It could tell you you're not doing enough of something, you're, you're doing too much of something, but it requires a lot of really skilled interpretation. And for a lot of articles, like, oh, this article's doing really well, do a second version, but maybe you don't understand why that article did well. Or maybe that article doing well is the key for you to make other articles do well that are very different. And it's just, it's complicated enough that unless you have a lot of time and skill to devote to it, I find it can it can help you as much as hurt you. So for YouTube Creator Studio, I do go in and I do try to see like how many views I'm getting over time, uh, like the, the acceleration of it, because that can be a good indicator of performance. And I do try to look if overall I'm gaining more than losing subscribers or I'm gaining more than losing views. But I try to look at that at a very macro level, like a month or two months or six months at a time, because I figure if I, if I try to look at that daily, I'm always going to have an anxiety level. <laughs> I'm just not comfortable maintaining. And you'll always be overcorrecting and you'll lose your voice. You know, all the all the problems you have when you write. Yeah, absolutely. Now that you've been at it a while, do you have any plans for the future, like big changes? Or, I mean, are you starting to see different directions for this to go for you? Well, I like experimenting. Like I said, I've been trying to do, I tried to do how-to videos for a while and they just... You know, and I like them. I'm going to keep doing them. They haven't done well. I think they're my poorest performing videos, but I, I still think they're good. So I'm still going to try making them when they make sense. And I was doing sort of a Friday news recap that I haven't had time for the last couple of weeks, but I want to get back to because that's just a different format. And I'm, I want to set up different sets so that I have, you know, like I have the one at the desk now and I want one at a chair and one on a sofa and one standing just so that I can move, start moving around the space a bit more and I want to nail down the audio and, and there's there's some setup things I want to just behind the camera stuff that I want to just get better at and so a lot of minor things that I'm going to be testing over the next little while as somebody with a, a tiny tiny fraction of the experience that you've had I think it's funny that uh, you related all of that where you want to change where you stand but then you had to admit and I want to figure out audio because I think that that is always the problem right mm-hmm yeah. And it's going to be different in each of those yeah. locations. Even in my little 200-square-foot studio, if I stand on one end or the other, I have different things to consider, right? It's it's so 
complex. And, you know, I got a comment once like, Aren't, don't you do podcasts for a living? Why isn't your audio better? It's like, yeah, but it's really different. Yes. Uh, unless you, again, unless you are willing to have the microphone in frame, you got to accommodate that. And it, it, it's a challenge, most definitely. Maybe I need that Bob Barker mic. The, the one that's going through my head lately is I've got this idea. I'm going to put eye bolts in the ceiling and start hanging moving blankets when I shoot. Yeah, that's my latest like yeah. pet project. And I'm just thinking somebody's going to come in here and see all these eye bolts in the ceiling and just say, what, what is this guy up to? Yeah. And I, I record at home and like my family's used to having cameras and lights around, I think, but I think there's a limit to where I can put stuff in you know, what's supposed to be a living space as well. Yeah, it's like, are you filming YouTube in the bathtub now? Like, what's, yeah. what's no, happening? Yeah, here? yeah, totally. What is? What, why is there a rig in here? It's not acceptable. <laughs> that's that's no good. Well, well, I really can't wait to see where you go with this because I I have seen so much improvement with what you do, and I think Thank you. you know you're one of the people in our community whose voice I like and trust. So I I just want to see what you do with it. I can't wait to oh, see where it goes. I appreciate that. Thank you. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by Direct Mail an easy-to-use email marketing app designed exclusively for the Mac to help you create and send great-looking email newsletters. Head over to directmailmac.com mpu to get 10% off when you opt for a full-feature plan. Email marketing is still an incredibly cost-effective way to reach your customers and grow your business. For the past 15 years, Mac users around the world have trusted the Direct Mail app to handle all of their email marketing needs. It's designed just for the Mac, which means it's fast and easy to use and works great with other apps and services you already use. With Direct Mail, you can quickly and easily compose high-quality emails that look great on mobile and desktop. You can grow your mailing list by creating email sign-up forms that you can add to your website or Facebook page, and you can save time by integrating with over 1,000 other apps and services on your Mac and the web. And there's just so much more to direct mail. They have real and human live chat customer support available to answer your questions. And Direct Mail is the number one top-rated email marketing app for the Mac with five-star reviews on the App Store, GitApp, and elsewhere. And it's trusted by small businesses, nonprofits, schools, and Fortune 500 companies alike. Direct Mail is free to download and get started. Listeners of this podcast can save 10% off all full-feature pricing plans. Just head over to directmailmac.com slash MPU to check it out. That's directmailmac.com slash MPU for that 10% off when you opt for a full-feature plan. Our thanks to Direct Mail for their support of Mac Power users and all of Relay FM. So, Renee, we're not just going to talk to you about YouTube today. I want to talk about Apple a little bit. You know, 2019 turned out to be kind of a weird year for Apple so far. Yeah, I mean, I guess it depends on on how you measure Apple. And there's all sorts of different ways of doing that. And I think recently, over the last few years, it's sort of gone from absolute unit sales to sort of the value. And this is like Kim Cook has been speaking about this for a while, to the value they can both give and extract from each customer. And that's just simply due to there being a limit to the amount of people on earth who can buy Apple stuff. Um, and so until they, you know, until Steven is the first Apple genius on Mars, there's going to have to be some sort of strategy where there's as many stores as they can handle, as many iPhones as they can sell. And they start looking at 
what they have to do next in terms of, you know, yeah, there'll, there'll be other products like glasses and cars and whatever, but just in terms of what a technology company means in the next decade, and I think it's going to be really different than what it meant in the last decade. The last decade was sort of like growing growing iPhone and Mac and iPad as a platform, and the next decade is about using that platform to build everything else out. Yeah, I'll tell you, watching the uh, Apple, T- was it the Apple TV Plus event in there? Yeah presentation of their con- content everybody i mean some people liked it some people didn't but just last week i watched the disney plus announcement yeah and the sheer amount and volume of not only back catalog content but the new stuff they are bringing to the table it really made apple's I, in my mind it made apple's stuff look a little pedestrian it's like apple is making this a hobby compared to these big entertainment companies that are coming in with all cylinders firing yeah, and I mean, you're going to get a bunch of pundits who says that Apple just you say that Apple just have to buy Netflix or just has to buy Disney. But I think that's also part of the reason. So the reason, at least my understanding, is the reason they did the March event. The way that they did it is that they knew that working with partners was going to result in a lot of leaks because there had already been a lot of leaks, and they just they felt it was really important to get their messaging out before the large scale Hollywood and game industry and and uh, news industry leaks just started flowing, and. They stayed nebulous because they knew sort of what Disney was going to be announcing and what sort of the other companies getting into this were going to be doing. And if they position this in the pedestrian way, which is quite possible they'll do, they'll just get steamrolled by the original content coming out of Amazon and Netflix and Disney. Uh, If they try to be clever about it and be sort of the digital hub for people trying to manage all of these different channels, because we've, we've really... Like yes, in the old days, you had to go to a, you had to decide which magazines you're going to subscribe to, you know, every year, and which video games you're going to buy, and which CDs you're going to buy, and there was a lot of very of individual purchases to make, and we flattened those down so you can get most magazines, and you'll be able to get a lot of video games and a lot of video for one price, but still managing all of those different things. Like I want to unsubscribe when Game of Thrones ends. I want to resubscribe to Arcade because we're going on a road trip for the next month. I want to take this off, add this on. On. And right now, there's just a lot of disparate ways to do that and no real sane interface to watch it all. And Netflix won't play nicely, and it remains to be seen if Disney will. But if Apple can at least, if Apple Plus is just a thin layer of, of not even frosting, but a few florets on top of a well designed video cake that has layers of different possible bundles on it, then I think that may not be a compelling use case, but it'll be a welcome use case for people just trying to stay, trying to stay able to handle all of that content yeah no and, and i i really like some of the stuff they announced it's just it's just i was really you know i mean you look at disney it's crazy how much stuff they're adding you know <laughs> what do you think you know are, what are your biggest concerns going into this year for apple and you know where they stand and and their hardware and software let's getting off the entertainment subject yeah, so I, every year I try to put up a list of what I think are going to be the biggest challenges for Apple, and almost always scaling is on that list because doing anything is usually manageable. Manageable doing anything at ten million or a hundred million can be all different kinds of headaches, from like what sort of technology you can put into a device to you know the kind of problems that you encounter when a hundred million people are using your devices, and it still feels like some three four years later that Apple the amount of products they make and the quantities of those products is still a huge challenge for them. Just in terms of like, we saw that with air power, just in terms of even getting something to market these days. And we went from almost everything coming out immediately to certain things being delayed or being out of stock to just, you know, something not shipping. 
Uh, and that's something that's going to take um, either a lot of discipline to choose which shots you take or even more management to make sure those shots hit, especially now where they've sort of taken the mothballs off of Mac. And if people aren't familiar with how that works, you know, Apple is still a very functional organization and their Mac team isn't the biggest, not because they don't have money for it, but there's a limit to how many engineers will live in Cupertino and how many of those engineers want to work on the Mac as opposed to iOS, which is the most popular thing, or iPhones, or you know the glasses or the car or whatever comes next, because some of the best people always want to work on the future. And they had a sort of their capacity to work on the Mac was limited for a while. And they've been really pushing to get that forward. And they've maintained it for a couple of years. But can they keep doing that? And what's the cost of doing that? Do they alternate? It's just managing the company doing more things and doing those things at a bigger scale than ever is, I think, the fundamental issue that they still have to deal with. I mean, it's easy to, we were talking about window management earlier. It's easy to say, well, well, how come they haven't fixed that yet? But if you go back 10 years, all they were doing was the Mac, or I guess more than 10 years now. But the, uh, when that was the only focus of the company, I feel like that stuff got more attention just by the laws of nature. And now that's not true. And also you go back like 10 years and you look at, so like one of the things I do whenever somebody says that, you know, the software is bad, I go back and look at like the Mac rumors forums from six years ago. And it's like, the software is bad. It's the worst year ever. Apple's falling apart. What's happening? And that's like a very human thing because if we couldn't experience current pain more acutely than previous pain, we would just not function. But when you go back and you look at like, you know, Steve would like genie up the file, the uh, finder and then genie it back down three or four times. Look at that beautiful animation and our tolerance level i feel now like if craig did that for even a second i feel like people immediately tweeting oh my god what is apple doing how come they're doing genie animations on a on a keynote and our our level of expectation and the competition and the other devices and the other features and the functionality and everything that we expect is so high now and just even even meeting even meeting those like two three events out of the year i think is, is is a challenge for them now so, so looking forward, what are you most excited about in the next year? I think my, the, the thing that's exciting me the most right now is not only did they get John Gianandrea uh, from Google, who was Google's head of search and uh, AI, uh, and he, he wants to do very ethical AI. And I think that's one of the reasons why he came to Apple is because they're, they're doing machine learning and they're doing computer vision and they're doing natural language, but they're doing it in a way that's very privacy centric. And they sort of built an organization around him that reminds me of what John, uh, Johnny Suruji's organization was 10 years ago for Silicon. It, it feels like it came out of nowhere, but they very carefully got the best Silicon engineers in the world and gave them not unlimited budget, but for people who were used to working for like a Qualcomm or an AMD or an NVIDIA, functionally unlimited budget to just make the best stuff and don't care about shelf life. We don't have to make our money back on the chip. We do that on the device. Just race and make us the best chips in the world. And they've gotten to that point. And now it feels like they're building that for AI. And they sorely need it. I mean, yes, they, they managed to get a neural engine into a chip starting three years ago. But AI is going to be everywhere. It's going to be a, a, not an interface layer, but sort of interface glue. And they're recruiting, I'm blanking on his name, but the person who was doing adversarial networks. Um, they're recruiting really top talent into that. And I think that's sort of going to be in the next three, four years, what Saruji's organization meant to them in the last decade. In the uh, the closer term, I think looking forward this year, iOS apps are going to be coming to the Mac in, yeah. in some form or fashion. Um, and I'm curious, you know, what, what do you think about that? Are there certain apps you're really looking forward to having on your MacBook Pro? 
Yeah, I sort of love looking at Twitter and seeing like like, like people who are almost religiously Mac get really uncomfortable and Steve Trotton Smith just be merciless to them at the same time. Mm-hmm. And it's a really interesting dynamic. And I, I fall somewhere in the middle, which is any the, the market for iOS is just so big. Uh, so anything that can help sort of get that same engagement with developers and um, the same sort of options for Mac customers, I think would be great. And I think that Apple needs this internally. Like you just take one look at messages or photos on the Mac compared to on iOS, and you can see that they're struggling with the same issues. They need to have unified code bases with that have different end spots on the interface, but they need to be able to add a feature to messages on the iPhone and it just they can use all that same logic and add it to the Mac. And solving that problem for them, um, I think will solve it for a lot of other apps. Like I know Greg Pierce went and made drafts in AppKit because he's a hero, but we don't have enough uh, cape wearing Greg Pierce's. And if other people can make their apps and then bring them to the Mac and not with no work, but with proper, like proper work of just interface level and not have to worry so much about the writing completely separate code. I think that could be a huge win for the Mac. I think it's just kind of fascinating the way the industry is dealing with multiple platforms. I mean, for the longest time, computers, there was one platform, you know, uh, you know, I mean, there was Apple and and Microsoft, but I mean, there was one layer of platforms, computers. And, uh, you know, when they first started bringing mobile in, it was kind of a joke. But then when mobile got huge, suddenly all these companies have to figure out how to address multiple platforms. And I feel like this story isn't even half over yet. And so many people think it's done, but it's not. And this is just one more chapter in that. Well, it's sort of super interesting because Microsoft failed hard at mobile. So they had no choice but to bring their desktop operating system forward. Google didn't have a legacy operating system, but internet apps have just never worked as well as native apps. So they bought Android and they've done a lot of work with that, even as they've tried to move internet apps forward with Chrome and Uh, I'm going to blame them for Electron because they deserve it and all those sort of other things where Apple has this legacy computing platform that a bunch of modern analysts like, ah, just get rid of it. You know, it's it's an anchor. It's holding you down. And they also have this super popular mobile platform where a bunch of traditional people are like, I can't even have a file system. Just just get rid of that and make, make the Mac touch already. And they sort of have those two twin tensions and they are working, you know, towards making that better. But it's it's a very different. It sort of feels like Apple is still straddling both or trying to straddle two worlds there. It's going to be fun to see how it all turns out. Absolutely. Well, Renee, thanks so much for coming back on the Mac Power Users and uh, and sharing your journey with us. It, it's you, you know you've really changed your your uh, channel of content since the last time we had you here, and just of course you've been very successful at it and. Uh, and uh, sharing all your video information. I hope some of the folks listening are inspired to try maybe a little of their own YouTube, but or even just make their home video better. Assuming you can get the sound right. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. Hey, Renee, where should people look for you on the internet? Uh, I'm at, I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Renee Ritchie. Most of my stuff is at imore.com slash vector. And if you just want the YouTube stuff, it's youtube.com slash vector show. And we'll make sure to include links for all of that in the show notes. All right. Uh, we are the Mac Power Users. You can find us over at relay.fm slash MPU. Uh, you can also check in at our forums over at talk.macpowerusers.com. And thank you to our sponsors today, Omni, 1Password, Direct Mail, and Hero. And we'll see you all next week. Bye.